Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, or if you want to grab a pew Bible nearby, please turn in the Word of God to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 7. Should be a very familiar verse. If you've gotten any Christmas cards this year, and if you've bought any real estate or know any insurance men, I'm sure you probably got a Christmas card from, from one of them, if not from others. But it is nice to get them. But if you didn't get any, uh, well, let us know. We'll send you one, okay? But generally on most Christmas cards, you see verses like the one we're going to look at today. And we, we, we are familiar with this verse. And that can be a danger. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt doesn't mean you despise it. It just means you don't take it too serious. Uh, it just seems to always be there. Well, this is one of those verses that we talk about a lot, but we really need to stop and consider. And if you've done that or are doing that, then praise God. It's Isaiah chapter 7 at verse 14, but we'll read verses 13 and 14. Um, Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz, and we'll get into the context of this a little bit better. <clears throat> And he is speaking on behalf of the Lord. And so in verse 13, Isaiah speaks and says, <clears throat> Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, bless us now in your word, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 7.14, this is the, the premier prophecy of the virgin birth. Specifically says the Lord is going to have a virgin conceive and bear a son. And then we're told just who that son is. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is quoted in the New Testament also. And so, you know, we can ask ourselves, why the virgin birth? Why was this necessary? Why couldn't Jesus have just been a regular guy born with a mom and a dad? There are some pretty important theological reasons. If you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me speak about the reasons behind it. The necessity of the incarnation, uh, the purpose of it, indispensable absolute necessity of the virgin conception and birth of the Messiah is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, in the Middle Ages, in the 10th century, there was a British monk named Anselm, and he wrote a book called Cordeus Homo, which translates basically, Why Did God Become a Man? And he cites that, and he goes through and talks about the reasons for Christ becoming a man. Now, there were various theories of the necessity of the atonement. Why did Jesus die? One theory that uh, the church father, as he's often called, Origen, who lived in the second century, set forth, 
said, well, man sold himself under the devil's authority, and so the devil had to be paid off. So God sent Jesus to pay off the devil so we could all be free. Well, Anselm looked at that, and Anselm read the scriptures. He knew the word of God, and he said, that's not what the Bible teaches. God didn't make any payment to the devil. Okay, that's not what was going on. And what he points out is that the payment that was made by Christ when he suffered in our place on the cross was a payment made to God because God is the one to whom we owed the debt of obedience that we had failed to pay first in Adam and then as Adam was our legal representative, he was you legally in the garden, the same as if you're a Christian, Christ was you on the cross legally. In Adam, you died because Adam sinned and he brought his posterity, as we say, all those born by natural generation, that is with a natural father and mother who are conceived and then born. They have Adam's sin imputed to them at the moment of their conception. David said, my mother, he said in Psalm 52, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David wasn't saying his mother was out of wedlock when he was conceived or that it was some horrible act of immorality. He's talking about himself. In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, David is saying, I was a sinner at conception. And that's our problem. Part of the judicial punishment that is, comes by the imputation of Adam's sin is death and all the corruptions that come with it. That's why Paul wrote and said, as in Adam, all die meaning all those who are in Adam, that is, are born by natural generation, they're dead because they died in Adam, and his sin is imputed to them. And death is not just meaning that you're neutralized spiritually. It means that all the corruptions that came with that, a fallen nature, a marred image of God, a twisted image, uh, is in you. And that's why you when you, as soon as you get old enough, you are needing to be disciplined or spoken to or little time out, whatever your parents do to try to get some sense into your head when you're little. Because the Bible tells us the wicked go estranged from, or are estranged from the womb. They go astray speaking lies. As I just shared with somebody earlier this week, um, you don't have to teach your children to, to uh, lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. Why? Because their natures are twisted. And that's why Jesus said, you must be what? Born again. And he said, and if you aren't two things, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And he also said, you can't see it. You can't see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you're not going to see it. It takes regeneration. That is, there has to be some change. Well, how is that brought about? Well, that's a sermon for another day, perhaps, but we can touch on it today somewhat. So the reason why I'm going through this is the necessity of the incarnation of Christ we needed to have someone come who could represent us and die for us but we needed someone who was not a descendant of Adam by natural generation we had to have somebody come in and this was you think about how could this be he has to be a fully human but he can't be descended from Adam by natural generation so that's impossible well the things that are impossible with men are possible with God and that's what this prophecy is all about that's why this child born to the virgin was going to be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel doesn't mean, oh, he shows us that God likes, it means God is with us. Imanu means is with us. El means God. There's your Hebrew lesson for today. Imanu, it means is with us. 
And then you put after that whatever you think is fitting. But if you're quoting Isaiah, get it right. You say, Emmanuel, with us is God. All right? This one that came was none other than God himself, the second person of the Trinity, clothed in human nature. He took to himself, joined into his, per to his person a human nature. He always had a divine nature. And so we have the two natures and one person, Jesus Christ. So the absolute necessity of the virgin birth. Now, as we look at this, we see there are certain things we need to consider. Okay, first of all, uh, the sign in its historical setting, and that's what chapter 7 of Isaiah is about. Secondly, we'll consider a few of the objections to this teaching, because obviously it hasn't gone without people trying to uh, deny it or to twist it or to say, well, that's just not what Isaiah meant. We'll see in a moment what the Holy Spirit meant and what Isaiah meant. And then again, thirdly, that the absolute necessity of it, that there was no other way for our redemption to uh, take place than for the virgin conception of the Messiah. That's the beginning. That's not all he had to do, but that's where it had to start. And so the sign in its historical context, well, to understand that, we have to read it chapter 7, a few verses. Isaiah says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Those of you who have been able to follow along on Tuesday nights, you kind of hopefully know who these guys are because we've gone through First uh, and Second uh, Kings and talked about Ahaz. He was not a godly king, but he was the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel. Remember Pekah? The northern kingdom was separated from the house of Judah, the house of David, or the tribe of Judah. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom was Israel. Well, the king of Israel got together with the king of Syria, and they had a plan. They went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David. Now notice here, Ahaz is the king, but this prophecy addresses the house of David. David is the one to whom the promise of being the one through whom the Messiah would come was given. So we're told it was told the house of David and Ahaz as king on the throne at that time is representative, saying Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. That's up north. That's, that's uh, Israel. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. It'd be like being told, oh, by the way, the army of the uh, communist Chinese are masked in the millions on the border of California and Oregon, you'd go, what? Okay, be pretty scary. All right, this is what this was like for them. There's a huge army being formed. Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So they were moved, it says, like the wind. It was like really an unstabling, troubling thought. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go now, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. God knew right where Ahaz was going to be, so he sends Isaiah there. He says, go there. He's going to be there, and you'll meet up with him. And say to him, this is what Isaiah is to say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, that's the kingdom farther north, not part of Israel. Ephraim, that's Samaria, the northern kingdom known as Israel. And the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, this is what they were saying. And God tells Ahaz exactly what their ideas were. Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, 
and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. So they had a guy picked out. They were going to put him on the throne. They were going to end the, the dynasty of King David. Well, God had said it would endure until the Messiah came, and then it would endure in the Messiah for eternity. And so here's how God answers it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. That city's still there today, and it is still the head of Syria. It's the capital. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. He was the king. Within 65 years, Ephraim shall, will be broken. Because the Assyrians were going to come and the northern kingdom was going to be destroyed. So he says that's going to happen within 65 years. So that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. That's the city. That was their capital. You know, the southern tribe had Jerusalem. Northern tribe, their city was Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So that's the setting. There's this conspiracy. It's troubling. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. Now, Ahaz is a hypocrite, and he's an evil king. It says that if you read in the historical books. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Yeah, that probably has something to do with him sending to Egypt for help already, thinking they were going to come, which they never showed up. All right. So he's thinking, oh, I, I don't want to tempt God. Who am I? Okay. He didn't want to tempt God because he was wicked himself. This guy was. So he says, I'm not going to do it. So then he said, hear now, O house of David. So Ahaz is being addressed, but it's going beyond him. The whole entire house of David. Because the royal family, the line of King David that's supposed to lead to the Messiah, is now being addressed. Not just to Ahaz, but for generations to come. So he says, hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? Okay, you wear out God's people by your wickedness and your vacillation and all the things you're doing in contempt of God. But will you weary my God also? God offers to give you a sign and you don't want to take it because you don't want to tempt the Lord? Well, you've been setting up idols all over Jerusalem. You've been offering sacrifices to demons. You've been doing all kinds of horrible stuff, but you don't want to tempt God, okay? It's like when they brought Jesus to the Romans. Remember, they brought him to Pontius Pilate, but they didn't want to go into the Praetorium because it was a Gentile dwelling because they didn't want to be unclean for Passover. They didn't want to be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. But they were willing to murder a guy that was innocent, that they knew was innocent, that they just hated because they were jealous of him. So that's what's going on. So we see this hypocrisy right here. So this is addressed. He says, will you worry my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now the word you there is plural. So he's not just talking to Ahaz. Hebrew has plural and singular pronouns when you're talking to the second person. In Old English, we used to use thee and thou if you're talking to one guy. Okay? And we'd use you and your if you were talking to more than one person. Okay? We've lost that in modern English. Try to supplement it with y'all, you guys, <laughs> you ones. I got a letter from my niece in the, from New England. It says, use Y-O-U-Z. And I thought, oh, it's a typo. And then I noticed all through the whole letter, it was whenever she was talking in the plural, she'd put a Z at the end of you. And I thought, well, who knows? That might be standard English someday, okay? And I'll know who did it, okay? My niece did that, all right? But we see this. We try to get that plural idea back in there. Well, in the Hebrew and in the Greek and in a lot of other languages, Latin, etc., you have singular and plural pronouns. You have it in Spanish also. You have, you know, tu and vos. So he says, the Lord himself will give you, if we were in the South, we could say y'all, a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We've gone over that a little bit, okay? Then he says, curds and honey he shall eat. In other words, the Messiah is going to be born. He's going to be God incarnate. You, the house of David has that promise. He's going to be born. The northern kingdom is not going to be around after 65 years. The Messiah is going to come. Curds and honey he shall eat. In other words, it's going to be a quiet time. You know, curds means there's going to be dairy products produced. Honey means you're going to be able to go out in the field. You're not shut up in cities. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. What's he saying? He's saying, those two clowns up north, they're going to be long gone off the face of the earth by the time Messiah comes. Oh, and by the way, Messiah is coming. So you don't need to be afraid. They're not going to be able to, they're not going to be successful. All right, so he's telling them, don't you worry about this. So this beautiful prophecy is given to the house of David. And by the way, it's interesting, both Joseph and Mary, although Joseph is just Jesus' adopted father, not his biological father, both of them, as we know from the genealogies in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3, both of them were descended from the house of David. <clears throat> so we see that his adopted father and his natural mother, Mary, the seed of the woman, remember the prophecy, the, prom the prophecy, I just created a word, the prophecy, okay? Uh, the promise, prophecy in Isaiah, excuse me, Genesis 3.15, where God told, in, when rebuking the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. That word bruise actually is the word suf. It means crush. can mean bruise also, but it also means crush. The idea is you're going to harm him physically, and it was literally fulfilled when Christ was nailed to his hands and feet, or by his hands and feet, to the cross, and Christ crushed the head of the serpent. But it was the seed, notice, the seed of the woman. Interesting. Right from the very beginning, the virgin conception of Christ and his birth of the Virgin Mary is hinted at, in that prophecy. God's word is always consistent. As Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. So he's telling him, you don't need to worry. But then he does say in verse 17, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And he goes on and talks about it. You're going to have trouble in the meantime. The kingdom of Assyria is going to come. They actually would be the instrument that God would use to sweep away the northern kingdom. And that happened, well, within 65 years. Isaiah prophesied 800 years before Christ came. Uh, and so it was shortly after that when the Assyrians came. Later, Judah went into captivity, but the house of David was still preserved even during that time. So that's the, in the historical setting. So it makes good sense. It was a prophecy given to give God's people hope. He's telling them, you don't need to be afraid right now, and you don't need to be afraid for, for the future, but there are going to be some bad things happen in the future. If you remember Hezekiah being shut up in Jerusalem, when Sennacherib took over most of the cities in Judah, even after the northern kingdom had been gone, uh, but he couldn't take Jerusalem, and the Lord sent the angel of the Lord and slew over 200,000 of the army of Syria, and they left. And went, Sennacherib went back home and, and died while worshiping his fake God. He died by the hands of his own sons. So we see this prophecy was given telling God's people, be at peace. Messiah is going to come. His name 
as we're told in chapter 9, is going to be Prince of Peace. So here we're told his name is Emmanuel. So we see the sign in its historical setting. Now there's been some objections brought to this. Uh, some in Jewish circles have said, oh, well, you know, Isaiah wasn't talking about a virgin conception. He was just saying a young woman is going to be with child. Oh, yeah, that's a real sign, huh? That's, boy, that's, what a miracle. There's going to be a young girl get pregnant, okay? They say, well, the Hebrew word is Alma. You'll hear this, by the way, if you read any commentaries or listen to those that deny the virgin birth. They say, well, the Hebrew word Alma isn't really the technical word for virgin, the technical word for virgin, meaning a, a maid that's never been with a man, that's betula in Hebrew, or bethula, but it, the H is silent generally in modern Israeli or Hebrew pronunciation. Betula is the word that means she's technically a virgin. Well, the problem is in Joel chapter 1, verse 8, the prophecy there talks about a betula mourning for the husband of her youth. So what? <laughs> yeah, a betula could be a married girl. And had, had Isaiah used that word, then people would have said, ah, oh, well, see, that can't be the virgin birth, because look at it, Joel chapter 1, verse 8. So see, that Mary couldn't have been uh, the mother of the Messiah, because it was just, she was just talking about a girl that was married that was going to have a baby. So Isaiah used the word Alma, and every place it's used in the Old Testament, it's used, it means virgin. Now, some might say, well, how do you know that? Well, you know, we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit from the New Testament, in the book of Matthew that we just read a few minutes ago, in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph had been told not to be afraid, Mary hadn't been unfaithful to him. She'd been faithful, but this was the miracle, and this is what had been prophesied. And the angel told Joseph, remember we read it in verse 20, uh, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now the name Jesus is he, uh, in Hebrew is Yeshua. If you know any Messianic uh, Christians, they'll tell you that. You know, that's how they like to call upon the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, although some of them insist that you must call upon him. It's like, no, this name's Jesus in English, and so it's okay to use a translation, all right? Um, but he says, you shall call his name Jesus. So if this was Hebrew, Yeshua, Yeshua means salvation. You're going to call his name salvation. By the way, in the Old Testament, it's also the name Joshua. You know, so um, he's telling him, you're going to call his name Joshua, Yeshua. Why? Because it means salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. Beautiful. That's what our Savior's name is. It's interesting, in Anglo-Saxon, in the... Uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon Gospels, uh, it's, it, they, they didn't use the name uh, Jesus or Yeshua or anything like that, or Jesus. Uh, they used Highland, which means Savior. So every place where in our Bible say it says the Lord Jesus Christ, it would say Highland Christ, uh, the Savior Christ, or the, you know, because that's what Jesus means. So the translator, it's really interesting, this was done back before the Norman Conquest in 1066, but they, they used the word, they just translated the name Jesus into Anglo-Saxon. Well, it means Savior, so that's what they put. A Highland Christ, you know, the Savior Christ, Jesus. So that's how they called on the Lord. And Anglo-Saxon England was, was a Christian people, a Christian nation at least. Medieval, but still pretty Christian. So then we're told, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. It's verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1. 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So here we get the you know, translation. Well, why did he add that, which is translated God with us? Because Matthew wrote in Greek. The original language of Matthew is Greek. I know some people try to say, oh, no, it was Aramaic or Syriac. I read those languages. There's so many Greek words in the Aramaic New Testament. It's really clearly, it's a translated uh, language, you know, it's translated from Greek into that language. So you have this uh, translation. The original, so the Syriac is actually a translation of the Greek original. And that, that, that teaching that the Aramaic or Syriac is the authentic text, that's basically done to try to discount when you have evangelical Christians using the Greek text to refute the errors of Eastern Orthodoxy. They go, oh, well, you don't know Aramaic. Okay, and it's not that I'm smart. I'm just curious, okay? So I, I do know that language. I've studied it. And uh, they don't know what they're talking about or they're, they're deliberately falsifying it, okay? It's very clear in the testimony of the early church throughout is that the original language was Greek. Okay, why am I insisting on that? The Greek word that Matthew used, he didn't use Alma, that's a Hebrew word. He used the word Parthenon or Parthenos. And it means virgin. That's what that word meant in Greek beyond any doubt. They even, you know, Athena, they're one of their gods. They referred to her, remember the, the, the Parthenon in Athens? You were there not too long ago. It's still there, right? Okay, the Turks almost blew it up, though, at one point, because they, they were storing their gunpowder in it, and that's why it, about two-thirds of it's not to be found now. It's there. It's just all over the place, okay? Still beautiful, though, okay? Uh, Athena Parthenon means Athena the Virgin. That's how they, they're false goddess. That's what they called her. But the word itself means virgin. God the Holy Spirit is telling us what that word meant. But, you know, liberals, they, they don't go down easy. You know, Bruce Metzger, who uh, did the, uh, a lot of the study notes in the, I think it's the Oxford Study Bible, uh, he said, well, clearly Matthew mistranslated it. It's like, okay, so let me get this straight, Dr. Metzger. You, you know Hebrew better than the Holy Spirit, apparently, okay? I don't think so, okay? Now, I trust Dr. Metzger. He was a liberal, but I hope he is with the Lord. He passed away a decade or so ago. Matthew used the word for virgin, okay? So if somebody says, well, how do we know what that word means? I've heard some say, well, if you believe the Bible, then you know Matthew is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is quoting it, and he used the word Parthenon. The, and Matthew didn't invent that, by the way. I said to one fellow once, I said, is there somewhere where we could find unbiased Jewish scholarship that's not Christian that could translate that for us? In Isaiah 7.14, that's what we're looking at, okay? The virgin conception and birth of Christ. And so you do what? Yeah, where can we find Jewish scholarship that's not Christian, but also isn't biased against the Lord Jesus Christ and his claims as Messiah? Where can we find that? Wait a minute, it's Jewish scholarship. Well, there's a lot of Jewish scholars who are, they try to be as objective as possible. And the Jews, you know, for the gospel's sake, Paul said they're our enemies, but for the elect's sake, they're beloved. That means we don't have any right to persecute them. And we should stick up for them and help them, okay? But where do you find unbiased Jewish scholarship? It's not biased against Christ. It's neutral. And just Jews looking at Isaiah. You can find it. You know how you find it? You go back in time. I don't have a time machine. I'm waiting on Timu to send me the fuses. No, I'm kidding. Okay. 
Um, that means it's never going to happen. But we don't have time machines. But we have documents from before the Christian era. We have a book, a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's the Hebrew scriptures translated from Hebrew into Greek by Jewish scholars. They did it before Jesus came. They had no bias against any idea of the claims of the New Testament regarding the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. They translated the book of Isaiah from the Hebrew into Greek. Guess what they did when they came to the word Alma in Isaiah 7.14? They used the word Parthenos, the same exact word that Matthew is using. They knew what it meant. It means virgin. They weren't prejudiced against You know, you get like a liberal Bible. The reason why the RSV in 1948, when they came out with it, it was not accepted by evangelicals. Because in Isaiah 7.14, because of the, the fact that they had a lot of non-believers working on it, they had Isaiah 7.14 say, a young woman shall be with child, etc. Well, that's what Alma means, you know. Well, we already went over that they couldn't, you know, that's, it means virgin. So we'd say, well, that's by a scholarship there. They're clearly taking a strike at Jesus when they do that against his virgin conception. But where can we find Jewish scholarship that's not biased against the claims of Christ? Go back in time, 3rd century B.C., about 250 B.C., during the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus. In, he's in Alexandria, his big library. He wanted the Jewish scriptures translated, so he brought in Jewish scholars and others to translate the, the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language. He wanted that in his library. They worked on that, and there were also a lot of Greek-speaking Jews at that time throughout the empire, at, at that time the Greek empire, and then later the Roman so they translate it, and when they came to Isaiah 7.14, they used the word Parthenon, or Parthenos, because they knew what Alma meant. Later, though, they started people, you know, non-Christian, or those that rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they said, oh, well, no, no, it, it doesn't mean virgin, no, I can't mean that, it, you know, because they'd use Betula. No, we already saw, Joel 1.8 rules out the idea of using Betula for virgin, because it refers to a young woman, or a virgin, or a maid, a young girl mourning for the husband of her youth. That's Betula mourning for the husband of her youth. That's a girl with a husband. That's not a, technically, that's not a virgin. Alma means a young woman who was a virgin. So they knew, so we, we can answer that objection, all right? And it's clearly answered in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when Matthew quotes it as such. And we have confirmation from the Septuagint itself, unbiased Jewish scholarship. And they said, no, it means a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. They knew what it meant. They looked forward to the Messiah coming. Those men at that time were believers. They were God's covenant people. And so we see the, that there are objections, but they're easily answered if we know our Bibles and we know history. Well, thirdly, the absolute necessity of this. The Redeemer had to be free from original sin, that is, Adam's sin being imputed. He had to be our sin bearer. The wages of sin is death. We couldn't have someone who owed the debt you know, come and then die for us because he'd only be paying his own debt. The necessity of a sinless Savior is absolute. We needed someone who was sinless and yet a true man. The Redeemer must be free from original sin and all of sin's effects. Adam's sin, as we said, is imputed to all his offspring, born from him by natural generation. That's us. Therefore, the Messiah could not be a descendant from Adam by natural generation, and yet he had to still be 
somehow descended from Adam, but not by natural generation. That's why he came through the seed of the woman. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been sinless. And Christ is sinless. That's very clearly taught in Romans chapter 5, Psalm 51, uh, 5, where David talks about his own being conceived in sin. But Christ was conceived holy. That's what the angel told Mary. So the Redeemer had to also be fully human. As we say, no half man or half God condition, but 100% man in his humanity so that he could 100% represent us. But he also had to be 100% God so that he could bear the weight of God's infinite eternal wrath against us in his humanity. So he had to be both man and God, two natures joined to his one person. <coughs> the Heidelberg Catechism, it was written in the uh, 1560s, actually published in 1563. Uh, they have some pretty good answers. So this is brief, so I, I want to give you a little bit of theology here. If you, <laughs> you think, like, wasn't that kind of what we've been getting here? Uh, but they ask this in a very good way. They said, can any mere creature make satisfaction for us? That is, somebody who's just a creature. And the answer is no, none can. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and redeem others from it. Obviously, this has influenced my understanding because that's what I talk about often. So they say it can't just be a mere creature because we need God's not going to punish just a mere creature for another creature's sin. But also it has to be able to bear the burden of God's eternal wrath against him because we've sinned against an eternal being. Some, you know, and people that have a low view of the deity of Christ, they don't really have a high view of God. You have to have a pretty, pretty low view of God and a low view of sin and what it is in order to uh, deny the deity of Christ. If you think that Jesus could just be a man and still be your sin bearer, you don't understand the one against whom we've sinned. What kind of a mediator and redeemer then must we seek? The answer is one who is true and a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. But by the way, that's, those were questions 14 and 15. Question 16 is, why must he be a true and righteous man? That he has to be fully human, but he can't be sinful. He's got to be true and righteous. Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. The only thing that could answer to a man sinning would be another human being. But one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Question 17, why must he also be true God? That by the power of his Godhead, he might bear in his manhood, in his humanity, the burden of God's wrath. That is, his deity upheld his humanity. And this is where, and I mentioned this before, it amazes me if you stop and think about this, and we should. Jesus' humanity was upheld by his deity so that the full force of God's infinite and eternal wrath against sin, our sin, your sin and mine, all of his elect ones, could be poured out on him and he could bear it. That's why, what did Jesus go through on the cross? It's indescribable. And for us as mere creatures, for us to comprehend it, that is to get our minds completely around it, I believe is impossible. We'll be spending eternity praising and glorifying our Savior for what he underwent for us. 
He experienced the equivalent of an eternal hell for us during the time he was on the cross. How could he do that? His deity upheld his humanity so that he in time could suffer the wrath of God and pay the penalty that we couldn't pay. The only way you could pay it would be to go to hell for all eternity and suffer. And you get that part about eternity, that means you'd never be able to finish it. That's why those who do die in their sins will go to hell for all eternity if they've turned their back on the offer of salvation through Christ. So God's will was that his son suffer in time, but his son had to be both true man to represent us and both true God. He had to be somebody that was infinite to uphold his humanity so the full force could be uh, poured out upon him. I think I've made uh, some comment in the past about in the Geneva Bible, they have a note saying that when the altar, the brazen altar, when the sacrifice was put upon it and burned completely consumed, so that's a picture of the deity. The altar was a picture of the deity of Christ. The sacrifice was just humanity being upheld until it had paid the full penalty. It was completely consumed. Now, Jesus paid for our sins. He died. That's the penalty of sin. He didn't cease to exist. But he had to be both God and man in order to restore to us righteousness and life. That is, he... He didn't just secure forgiveness. He secured our acceptance back with God and that we would be given righteousness and life. And then question 18 is beautiful. Who now is that mediator who in one person is true God and also a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is freely given unto us for complete redemption and righteousness. I love that answer. Who is it? It's, it's Jesus, this little babe that we read about that was born so we see this this wonderful promise that christ is given fully human to represent us as our substitute that is the vicarious penal sacrifices it's often said fully god to bear the full weight and force of god's just wrath against us because of our sins in his humanity being upheld by his deity giving his sacrifice and eternal virtue these two natures must act together in his one person, which is eternal, and though separate, never mixed, that is, he's not, you know, part God, part man, mixed together. He is 100% God, 100% man, joined in himself, one person, being inseparably joined in his one person eternally to accomplish our full redemption. That's why in the book of Acts, chapter 4, we'll turn there and conclude. In Acts, chapter 4, When Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit speaking to the Sanhedrin, he said, referring to Jesus, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, that is the leaders of Israel. That's why they deny the virgin conception now. They rejected the stone that God made the foundation corner. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In the context, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He's the only Savior. But he is the Savior. And that's why we need to get the word out. Salvation is only through Jesus. We need to let people know. There's not many ways to God. There's one way. God kept it simple. You know, if somebody says, well, there might be a hundred different ways. 
Well, maybe 101. Maybe the one you're on is at 101. It's fault. No, God made one way so people would know. It's like when a boat's sinking, you got one lifeboat. People might say, oh, no, there's another one up there. There isn't. One way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into this world, conceived of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and born a true man to save us from our sins. Praise God. We have something to celebrate. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the coming of your Son. We thank you for his holy and beautiful and sinless uh, conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you became a man. You took our human nature to yourself and you suffered for us. You died and you rose again. We thank you that you've ascended to the Father's right hand in your humanity and there you intercede for us. And we thank you that you're coming again someday in glory and we will see you and be with you. So sanctify our hearts, Lord. Comfort our hearts with the promise of the gospel.